0: Thank you for that very impassioned uh, paper, and I I think you've you've all shown your appreciation for it in the appropriate way. You did say that that, that Sheehan was a man uh, with many hats, and it it reminded me of what the American historian Carl Sandburg once wrote, that every politician needs three hats, one to throw in the ring, (laughs) one to talk through, and one to pull rabbits out of. (laughs) 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, with that, I'll introduce uh, uh, Frank Calder. Um, I'd like to uh, begin with uh, Harold Frederick's uh, portrayal of Dylan uh, in an extraordinary composite portrait he wrote of the Parnellite members In the New York Times of the 7th of August, 1887, three years before things fell apart. And I better retrieve my, John, can I retrieve my glasses? That's a bit small. Thank you very much. And what uh, Frederick. uh, I should say Frederick, first of all. Of of Frederick, he was born in Utica, New York, of Dutch, French, and New England ancestry. He left for England as the London correspondent of the New York Times in 1884 and remained there until his early death in 1898. While he wrote a major novel, The Damnation of Theron Ware, he was not possessed of the amplitude of vision of his fellow expatriate, Henry James, not that James was sympathetic to Irish nationalism. Frederick while a professed supporter of Irish nationalism was virulently dismissive of Parnell and later of Dillon, while there is remarkably little trace of their personal relations, from what Frederick wrote, it is clear that throughout his principal informant on Irish affairs was T.M. Healy. And um, what uh, Frederick wrote in 1887 uh, was you'll find that even the dullest and least informed English Tory newspaper in its attacks upon Irish members will go out of its way to say that nobody impugns John Dillon's motives. This exemption will not be based upon any knowledge whatsoever of Dillon or of the other Irish members for that matter. It will be made because somehow the notion has got abroad that John Dillon is different from the rest, more conscientious, more abstractly patriotic, more poetically impracticable. This idea comes in part from the fact that he is the son of John Blake Dillon, one of the finest and most attractive figures in the Young Ireland movement, and in part from his own actions and utterances, which always seem to betray the consciousness that there is a distinction between him and his colleagues. Doubtless, he has never defined the thing to himself, but he always impresses me as feeling that he is the visible connecting link between the poetic and chivalrous uprising of 1848 and the severely practical and hard-fisted political bargaining of 1886. What Frederick Frederick described Dylan physically in the following way, he's very tall, thin man whose jet-black beard and straight hair, stooping shoulders and cold, grave face make him look ten years older than his real age, which is Thirty-six eighteen eighty-seven. He may not be either a gloomy or self-enwrapped man, but he gives the stranger as chilling a sense of being both as if he were a materialized portrait of Philip II, stepping out of its framed entombment in the escorial. Meeting him often, I can never rid myself of the Spanish grandee sensation which he creates. One instinctively feels that he ought to have a cloak, a sombrero, and a Toledo blade, and stalk solemnly by himself on the prado. Frederick returned to the subject of Dillon, in his three-part commentary on Irish affairs, in the published anonymously in the Fortnightly Review in 1892 to three. What he had to say of Dillon prefigured Healy's 1898 polemic against Dillon. Why Ireland is not free. And what Frederick wrote was that although abnormally short-sighted. He never tried spectacles until a few years ago, and then he gave a curious account to his friends of the surprise and interest with which he had beheld for the first time the lineaments of the English statesman who had been sitting on the Treasury bench opposite him, session after session. (laughs) The anecdote is characteristic. One feels that there are all sorts of things which Mr Dillon would comprehend or at least see differently if he could have spectacles for his mental vision. Without... (laughs) Without them, he is a narrow man, self-centered to a remarkable degree, with an extremely small stock of ideas available for everyday use. He is the library one would expect to find in the house of a well-to-do rural physician, of a metaphysical turn, who preferred leisure among his books to general practice. The volumes range from the occult to the supernatural, from the atomic demonstration to the philosophical abstract. Mr. Gradgrind, would have turned away from the lot with a heart bowed down. No educated man ever sat in Parliament with a slighter interest in and knowledge of the things with which a Parliament is supposed to deal. (laughs) Mr (laughs) Dillon does occasionally import into his speeches a showing of facts and figures, but the trained eye can always tell from what page in the back part of Thoms' Irish directory he took them. That is the case for the prosecution. (laughs) Leaving aside the Heliite animus, Frederick was correct in suggesting that Dillon was not temperamentally well adapted for political life. In that, Dillon was certainly not unique among European politicians of the 19th into the 20th century, the generation or two of leaders, the political longevity of many of whom did not survive the maelstrom of the Great War. Not in any sense patrician, he belonged rather to the professional classes without ever practising as a doctor, which was what he was qualified as. He was drawn into politics by the patriotism of his father and the radical nationalism of his own youth. His stern patriotic commitment made him a representative figure in European as well as Irish politics, a figure of the romantic nationalism of the 19th century that survived into the 20th he was also representative in being a figure of the centre-left insofar as one can situate Irish agrarianism on the left of the spectrum as I think one can and his moderate anti-clericalism in the Irish sense of that term had a European as well as an Irish caste. Often he seemed frozen in inflexibility. Francis Cruz O'Brien wrote one conceives of him not merely as the stern unbending Roman patriot but as the Roman patriot transplanted with all his rigidness and prejudice and severity, untempered and unaccommodated. History thus far has been unkind and, I think, unfair to John Dillon. The the commemorative cycle on which uh, we have embarked has produced a strange churning effect which challenges, perhaps usefully, the the historiographically conventional ranking of individuals by reference to their political stature as it was contemporaneously perceived. It also enacts an elision of the decades that preceded the rising. The exercise is not propitious for a reassessment of John Dillon as a historical figure. Part of the difficulty lies in John Dillon's loyalty to John Redmond. Loyalty in politics is the great unsung virtue which awaits its Montaigne. Without loyalty, there is no coherence of party. The idea of party discipline is openly derided, of course, in contemporary Ireland. It was Parnell who imparted to Dillon the belief in party discipline and in a tight, centralised organisation. In this sense, Dillon remained a Parnellite in spite of his opposition to Parnell in the split It's true that the conception of party discipline to which he held was excessively rigid and impaired his responsiveness to the shifting intellectual and cultural contours of Irish nationalism after Parnell. The Redmond-Dillon relationship was an extraordinary one. Their views frequently diverged, but their differences were subordinated to their common predicament. They don't seem to have been personally close but partly by working in demarcated spheres, their political relations were more than workmanlike. It's difficult to identify specific things that Dylan might have done differently to Redmond. The chief exception relates to Redmond's pledging of active nationalist support from the outset of the war about which Dylan had silent reservations. It's more a matter of tone, very much with a small t., Dylan did not have Redmond's instinctive proclivity, which was emotionally deep and went beyond the merely strategic, to articulate the Irish claim to legislative independence within a British and imperial setting. Dylan was far less adrift than Redmond of the shifting centre of gravity of Irish politics across the course of the war. That is the significance of Dylan's furious intervention in the House of Commons after the Rising he immediately understood what the rising and the executions meant. You are washing away our whole life work in a sea of blood. It is the only speech of Dillon that is remembered in a parliamentary career of almost four decades. Still, it's doubtful whether an Irish party led by Dillon from before the war would have been spared the fate of the Irish party led by John Redmond until his death shortly before the general election of December 1918, after which Dillon led the party. Moreover, Dillon's increasingly obsessive belief that Lloyd George had deliberately sought to encompass the destruction of the Irish party, to, to wipe out the moderate force, uh, discloses an ill-adaptedness on Dillon's part to the high politics of which Parnell, the leader he felt too Im- impelled to forsake in the split, was such a placidly sardonic practitioner. Recent histori- historiography has also, I think, been unjust to Dylan. Uh, Paul Bew, a superb historian of prodigious insight, has argued that Dylan was a negative influence in the course of nationalism from nineteen hundred, by inhibiting the pursuit. Uh, sorry, by, uh, through a. The pursuit of an outmoded agrarian agenda inhibiting the development of filiations between nationalism and unionism or or former unionism in Ireland, notably in relation uh, to uh, uh, Wyndham's Land Act of which Dermot spoke. The canvassing of any serious argument that cuts across the inexorable after-the-fact rail track to the rising narrative of Irish history. The reinstatement of what James Joyce magnificently termed ousted possibilities is of historical import. I simply don't find Paul Bew's hypothesis that there was a major uh, prospect of political advance that was cut off by the resistance to uh, the land acts, the resistance to... conference and conciliation uh, convincing and in saying I don't find that particular thesis convincing I hope I am not tethering myself to the sleepers of the rail track Uh, I certainly uh, uh, agree that John Redmond's judgment on the land issue uh, uh, was uh, uh, very much better than Dylan's the reasons for the occlusion of John Dillon in Irish history and politics, uh, I think run deep. Whenever one returns to the extraordinary and defining half-century of Irish history that runs from the late 1870s to the early 1920s, it looks slightly different to what it did when one last visited those decades. It's not simply that it's still comparatively recent that we struggle to apprehend it. I think we have to overcome an inhibition to taking full account of what happened in Ireland from the late 1870s to the Parnell split of 1890 to 91. We talk constantly of the rising cropped in time, but we neglect its long prelude in which John Dillon had his beginnings as a public figure and in which he came to prominence. I don't think that's an inadvertent oversight. It is an inhibition that runs deep and is not of recent origin, which correlates to but is distinct from the treatment of the famine in nationalist rhetoric. That forgetting or pushing aside of the late 1870s and 1880s has to do with a certain diffidence, a shyness. Even, I think, it could be argued a certain shame about the materiality of the land struggle in which the Irish movement, under Parnell's auspices to statehood, acquired its momentum. We are almost monomaniacally habituated to seeing Irish history as a contest of constitutional nationalism and physical force, a binary opposition that shifts back and forth. But that omits the land question, or rather, what had become the answer to the land question, as Dermot and Tom have have described, that answer evolve? How much of the motivation of the insurgents of 1916 was silently directed to the refutation by symbolic act of the idea that the transcendent purity of Irish nationalist aspiration could have been satiated by agrarian reform? certainly, I think, more than the insurgents said or we are prepared to acknowledge. Every revolution has its Puritanism, and it is here we should seek to find that of the Irish Revolution. And that is why the historical significance of John Dillon will not be given its due this time around or any time soon. Thank you.